Have you ever had the experience of observing someone showing an excessive or even extreme outpouring of emotion, not understanding what was going on? I have a very clear memory of being a six-year-old boy and being at a friend's house and receiving from my hosts my first pack of baseball cards. I didn't know what this was. I didn't really even know about baseball. I opened it up. I ate the piece of gum. That made sense to me. And watched with amazement as my friend's older brothers were so excited that I had gotten a Jose Canseco rookie card. <gasps> Can you believe it? They were jumping up and down. They were so excited. I didn't know who Jose Canseco was. I didn't even know what a baseball card was. But they were excited. It was only much later that I realized what their excessive, even extreme outpouring of emotion was about. Well, this was the best player in baseball at that time, the best rookie. It's his first year in baseball at that time. They were excited. I had gotten that card. And in retrospect, as a baseball fan, I can now say that their response to that Jose Canseco rookie card was a reasonable and a right response. I wonder if you've had this experience. Maybe it's a friend recommending a restaurant with so much excitement, going on and on about how good the food is, and you thinking, this is a bit excessive, it can't be that good. And then going and experiencing it for yourself and realizing they had actually undersold it. This was so much better. Their excessive, what seemed extreme outpouring of emotion was actually the only right and reasonable response to something so good. In our passage this morning, we see what appears to be an extreme display of emotion by a woman as she approaches Christ. She expresses in a dramatic and effusive way love for Christ. To the people around her, they're confused, even put off by what seems so awkward what appears to be extreme and excessive. But as the passage goes on, what we see is not the outburst of an unstable woman, but in fact the only right and reasonable response to the person of Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Luke. We are looking at the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We're going to be in Luke Chapter 7 and the first few verses of chapter 8 this morning, beginning in Luke 7 and verse 36. Luke is a narrative of eyewitness testimony about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Luke actually tells us in the first few verses of his gospel that he has written this narrative of eyewitness testimony to engender certainty. Uh, in the hearts and minds of his readers. Certainty about who this Jesus is and what he's come to do to understand more of his life and ministry. So that's what the book of Luke is to give us. Certainty about Jesus. In the first three chapters of Luke, uh, the writer, Luke, is actually laying out for us Jesus' qualifications to be the, the only Messiah and Savior of of, of God's people. We see in his qualifications his 
miraculous birth to a virgin. We see him being recognized as the fulfillment of prophecy. We see that he is both God and man, God incarnate, the person of Jesus Christ. In chapters 4 through 6, Jesus begins his ministry, and he actually tells us in those chapters, 4, 5, and 6, why he's come. That he's actually come in order to bring a message, in order to preach good news. He says the Spirit has anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to those that realize their spiritual poverty. And now in our section, in chapter 7 and 8, Luke is holding out for us Jesus' salvation, telling us how it is that Jesus has come to save. In our passage, Jesus receives an invitation from a Pharisee, a religious leader, to come and to eat in his home. Jesus receives this effusive display of love and gratitude from a previously immoral woman in the home of this Pharisee. And in our passage, Jesus teaches about salvation. And in a striking turn to the conversation, rebukes the religious leader and holds up the sinful woman as an example for us to follow. So if you are taking notes, our big idea from the text is this. This is the big idea from the text. Forgiven sinners love. Forgiven sinners love. And we'll have three points. Number, point number one, sinners. Point number two, forgiveness. And point number three, love. I pray that this morning that all of us would see that we are great sinners and yet have hope as we see that there is a great Savior. Let's begin reading in Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll walk through these three points. Point number one, sinners. Point number two, forgiveness. And point number three, love. I'm going to read this aloud. Luke seven thirty six and following. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. That is, asked Jesus. And so Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him. And Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is God's word. Point number one, sinners. Uh, in in your, your bulletin, you'll see that our title for the sermon today is Forgiven Much. As I've considered it since then, I've wondered if I shouldn't have named this sermon A Tale of Two Sinners. You see, in our passage, there are these two sinners. There's Simon, the Pharisee, a man who is a great sinner. The passage bears this out. And this woman, this one that everyone knows to be a sinner, an immoral woman, perhaps a prostitute or an adulterous woman that is known to be such in the city. Let's look quickly at the context here. This Pharisee invites Jesus to dine with him, and Jesus accepts the invitation. It's been made clear by Luke that Jesus spends time with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees and religious leaders Look down on him for this. But do you notice that Jesus is even willing to meet with Pharisees? He has hope that all kinds of sinners would hear his message and come to salvation through him. And so Jesus is willing to come. Nothing more is said about, about this invitation. <clears throat> we might question why this Pharisee would desire to have Jesus under his roof. If you look through the Gospels, the Pharisees were not, as a group, known for being allied with Jesus. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see them regularly attacking Jesus and seeking to kill him and destroy him and undermine him. So we might wonder, why is it that this Pharisee is inviting Jesus over? Is he really interested in hearing from Jesus and learning from him and becoming a disciple? I think it becomes clear as the passage goes on that this Pharisee, Simon, is quite skeptical of Jesus. We see that in his heart when this woman comes in. It's more likely that he's brought Jesus in in order to observe him more closely, maybe observe some reasons to discredit him or to undermine his ministry. And yet he, at least in terms of appearances, is offering hospitality to Jesus, and Jesus comes. The Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists of their day. They were the religious extremists of the Israelites in Jesus' time. They were known for being extremists in obeying every bit of the law, every letter of the law, and building their whole lives around a detailed obedience to every single law in the Old Testament. And not only that, they even created more laws of their own to make sure that in the small things they did throughout their days, they didn't in some way step outside of the law of God. However, as Jesus makes clear over and over again, they miss the forest for the trees. They so often, in their focus on obeying the law, miss the, the most important things, loving God and loving neighbors. 
And they use the law not to understand who God is and to lovingly follow Him, but to justify themselves. And in their supposed obedience, to compare themselves with others and look down their noses at others. Now what's fascinating about this tale of two sinners is as far as appearances go, we would think of the Pharisee as being the religious one and the sinful woman as being the non-religious one. As we would think about this in terms of first appearances, this tale of two sinners, we would think of the Pharisee, the, the religious leader, as being the one that must be right with God and this sinful woman as one who must have no hope of salvation. But as we'll see, this passage is full of ironies. In fact, Jesus actually turns the tables on the whole scene. Let's walk through it as we consider this first point, sinners. This woman comes in. It's a a public meal, it looks like. It looks like he has open doors. People knowing that a, a famous person has come in would be able to come in and perhaps sit or stand on the outside and watch and listen. But this woman in a very awkward display, doesn't just stay on the outside and watch and listen, but she enters in and begins showing a display of love to Jesus. Look at how it describes it. This woman learns that Jesus is there. She learns that he's reclining at the table. The way that they would eat would be to have a table and to have cushions around the table and to recline as they eat with your feet out away from the table, your dirty feet away from the table. This woman comes, looks like unashamed and unabashed, and begins showing great emotion, weeping, and allowing her tears to wash Jesus' feet. Instead of a towel, she uses her hair to wipe his dirty feet. And then she uses an expensive ointment that she's brought and begins to anoint his feet with it, and kissing his feet. Talk about an awkward scene. Talk about a a strange display. I think at first, as you see this, we would relate to the host. Imagine inviting people to a meal and having someone awkwardly crash your party come uninvited and unannounced and begin doing awkward things, creating an awkward scene in your home, at your table. And yet that's what this woman does. We see in the midst of this awkward display, the Pharisee, the religious leader's response both to the woman and to Jesus. He responds to this woman with arrogant condescension, looking down at her as a sinner dismissive of her as unworthy. But his focus isn't as much on the woman as it is on Jesus. Do you see how he responds to Jesus? He makes, in his mind and in his thoughts, accusations about Jesus. If this man was a prophet, if he were a prophet, he would not let this happen. Because this woman is a known sinner. He would know that she's a sinner. And he would not allow himself to be defiled by association with such a person. Do you see the mindset of this Pharisee? This Pharisee is a sinner. He is arrogant. He is prideful. He is judgmental. 
He is, in his thoughts, mistreating this woman and seeing her as unworthy of attention, of association, and of love. But not only that, he is also making lots of assumptions about what Jesus should be if he were to be a a prophet of God. That he would have the same mindset as Simon has, this Pharisee. That he too, if he were a good prophet, would treat people this way too. That he would be like the Pharisees, separatistic, separating ourselves off from anyone that would make us unclean or mess with our reputation. But look at how different Jesus' response to this woman is. It's clear he knows who she is. How do we know that he knows who she is? Well, because he reads Simon's thoughts. And he answers Simon's thoughts. You see what Jesus does there? Do you know Jesus reads our thoughts? He knows our deepest desires. He knows our sins, not just the outward expressions of them in our actions and our words, but He knows the sins that are in our hearts. And here Jesus initiates a conversation with Simon, having read Simon's thoughts. You see what Jesus does here. He turns the tables by giving Simon a parable, a story. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then He gives this Wonderful parable. The parable of two men who had two debts. The one owed 50 denarii. The other 500. A a denarius, denarii is the plural, a denarius is the Roman coin that was generally used as a wage for one day of day labor. So you can calculate this if you're a blue-collar worker. You go and you do a day's labor, a day's work. In general, a denarius is what you would receive as payment for that one day's work. So 50 denarii, denariuses, is basically 50 days' work, or maybe a couple of months of salary if you are a laborer. 500 then would be maybe almost two years of salary. So you can think of this in your mind. You can imagine being behind on your payments by a couple of months or behind on your payments by the salary of a couple of years. These are two very different debts. And what happens to these two debtors? These two people and so much credit card debt. Well, their master, the one who has their debts, forgives them both. Jesus asks, based on this parable, which of the two debtors will love their master more? And Simon gets this right. I assume it's the one who's been forgiven more. He says, you're right. I think sometimes we can read a parable like this and think that what he's talking about is that Simon is the one who's only sinned a little bit and this woman is the one who's sinned a lot. But that's not what Jesus is doing. The point here isn't who is the greater sinner. The point that Jesus is making is who realizes how much sin that they have. You see, we have actually two sinners here. They're Simon and this sinful woman. And they're both sinners. They're both great sinners. But they sin in very different ways. This woman 
has been involved in more well-known public scandalous kind of sin. It looks like sexual sin. She's known to be a sinner in, in, in a, a very public way. Simon's sin, all at times, is public, is within inside himself. The thin of his, sin of his thoughts and of his perspectives, of his arrogance, looking down in judgment on others. But the point here is that this woman is held up as an example because she realizes how sinful she is. And so she responds to Jesus with love, knowing that she's been forgiven the greater debt. We'll go on to talk about forgiveness, but let's spend a moment or two thinking about what this means. The fact that we are sinners. What this passage is teaching us. That we are, in fact, great sinners. The point that Jesus is making here is all of us are great sinners. All of us have sinned greatly against God. The problem is not that we've only sinned perhaps a little bit or a lot. And some of us are in this category of having only sinned a little bit and others in the category of having sinned a lot. No, the problem is we're all great sinners, but we're not aware of how great that sin is. You see, the difference between this woman who's a sinner and this man who's a sinner is the woman knows she's a great sinner. The man thinks he isn't, but he is. And it is the religious leader who is in great danger because he is not aware of his sin, of how deep it is, of how ugly it is. He's thought of himself as being righteous and good. This woman is under no confusion about her sinful state. No, she knows she's a sinner. And that is what causes her to weep and to come and express such love and joy to Jesus because she knows in Jesus her sins can be forgiven. The Bible tells us, all of us, have sinned greatly against God, every one of us. That all of us have rebelled against our good and loving Creator God. That all of us have taken God off of His throne, and rather than submitting to Him as our good and loving authority, we have rejected Him. We have, in fact, climbed up onto the throne of our own lives, wanting to be king of our own lives, wanting to be the ones to make the rules, to say what is good and right, what is right and wrong. And the Bible tells us that this sin that all of us have committed, that all of us continue to commit through all of the smaller sins, this great sin of rebellion that all of us have taken part in, deserves God's just wrath and punishment. All of us deserve to be rejected by God, cast out from His presence under His wrath forever. All of us deserve such right judgment. And yet the Bible is clear that while all of us deserve such judgment, there is hope of forgiveness through Christ. The problem with us is not only are we sinners and not only have we rebelled and not only are we under judgment, but we are blind and not able to understand the situation that we're in. We're blind in thinking that we're all pretty good people. That all of us deep down are are pretty good. That we're not that bad. We're very good like this Pharisee of comparing ourselves with others and putting ourselves in a place of, well, at least I'm better than that person. And if God grades on a curve, I think I'm going to be okay here. Because I know people a lot worse than me. But you know, all of us are sinners. 
And God doesn't grade on a curve. And none of us are going to receive a wink from God and allowing us to come in like a grandfather who doesn't take our sins seriously. No, God is a good and right judge. He would be wrong if He allowed our sin to go unpunished. What the Bible teaches is that all of us are great sinners. That all of us deserve great judgment. But the wonderful thing is that all of us can have great hope. Not because we can somehow earn our way to God or somehow balance out the scales and fix our past sins by somehow now living a righteous life to to make up the debt that we owe to God. No, our only hope of salvation isn't in God grading on a curve or winking at our sin, but in all of our sins being taken away through the forgiveness that Christ has come to bring. The Gospel message begins with very bad news, but it goes on to offer the greatest news that anyone can receive. The good news, the the Gospel tells us that there is salvation for great sinners like you and me. Jesus hasn't rejected us and walked away from us, which is what we would deserve, but left heaven and left glory in order to come to live a perfect life, the one that we didn't live to die on the cross, a sacrificial death in our place, in the place of sinners like you and me, if we would repent of our sins and trust in Him. The Gospel tells us that there is hope, that Jesus has died for sin, has been raised from the grave in resurrection and victory, proving His power over sin and death, so that, so that sinners can now have hope if we would turn from our sins, if we would trust in Christ and what He's done for us on the cross we would put our our hope in his resurrection life we can now have all of those sins every one of them sins that are far in the past the stuff of our nightmares as well as those sins of yesterday and today that are on the forefronts of our mind each and every sin can be taken by christ if we would put our faith in him there is Wonderful hope in the gospel. If you are here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, run to Christ. Let me encourage you to take this burden of your sin that all of us feel, that burden of shame and of guilt, and bring those things to Christ like this sinful woman did. And know that Christ will receive you with love. He will receive you with tenderness and mercy. He will receive you as a child to a father. If, we're, uh, if you're here and you are a Christian or maybe even a member of our church, there's application for us, not only in terms of salvation here, but even in terms of how it is that we relate to one another in the church. You see what Jesus is telling us in this passage. All of us are great sinners. Each and every one of us are great sinners. We often as Christians can fall into playing games like Simon here being very focused on cleaning up the outside of of our lives, presenting as if everything is going fine, having a very good Instagram and Facebook profile, presenting like everything is great. You may have great things in your life. I hope you do. I'm glad you do. But you know all of us still, even those of us who are Christians, are still sinners. We are still wrestling with this sin, this old nature that pervades our lives and continues uh, to beset us. 
me encourage you, Christian, to not be hiding your sin and focused on looking at the sins of others and comparing yourselves with them. It isn't the job of Christians to be looking down our noses at other Christians or wanting to place ourselves in a pecking order of how good or bad we are in comparison with other people or how good or bad we pretend to be. No, we need to be as Christians, willing to be open and honest about our sin, to have people in our lives that we can be open and honest with and talk with about our struggles that can enter into those sin burdens and help us to carry them. Let me encourage you, Christian, to not play these games like Simon the Pharisee and be focused on presenting as if you're doing great when you're not. Let me encourage you to be actually delving into the recesses and the ugly nooks and crannies in your heart and growing and understanding more of your own sin. There is in our joy in Christ even more joy to be found the more we understand how sinful we are. The more we grow in understanding how sinful we are, the more we're going to love Christ. Let me encourage you as well, Christians, to be thoughtful and merciful in the way that you think about and relate to non-Christian. Pastor Matt Chandler tells the story of an encounter that he had in college. He, was, he and his friends were witnessing to uh, a single mom who was trying to get her life back together and was in college with them. They were trying to share the gospel with her. They were trying to help her out, give her some babysitting. They invited her to a a Christian concert, and she came with them, and they were hoping that this would be a wonderful opportunity to share Christ with her. As she went to this concert, one of the things in this concert was a, a message by a speaker. And the message ended up being a True Love Waits talk. True Love Waits was a movement In the 90s, uh, I think at heart, a good and helpful movement of helping teenage Christians keep themselves pure before marriage, which is a wonderful thing to, to hold out to teenagers. But the way that this speaker presented the talk was harsh. It brought condemnation and shame rather than hope in Christ for those that have sinned. He tells the story of this teacher throwing out a rose, holding out a rose, saying, this is such a nice rose, smelling it and saying, I want all of you to uh, touch and smell this rose as well. And it got passed around the thousand-person crowd. At the end of his talk, he asked for it back. And that rose was uh, broken. It was now tattered. It was now in pieces. And it looked shabby and ugly. And he held it up and said, "Who who would want this rose? You see, the the message that he was holding out for these teenagers was, you don't want to give in to sin and become such a tattered rose. Out of a desire for something good, he ended up coming down unbelievably harsh in a way that broke the heart of this woman who was considering Christ. As this man said, who would want this rose? Matt described how angry he became and thought to himself, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. Jesus can repair, can heal, can wash and cleanse this rose. As he promises in his new covenant promises in Ezekiel 36, he will sprinkle clean water on them and they will be clean. You know, Jesus takes sinners, all kinds of sinners, great sinners, 
and He cleanses them. That's what happens in salvation. At times we can communicate, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that the main point is don't be a dirty rose. When in fact, the message we should be holding out is Jesus is a Savior for all kinds of sinners. There is mercy in Christ. Come to Him. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up or how broken your life is. There is no life so broken that Christ cannot fix it. Let me encourage you Christians in the way that you look at non-Christians, in the way that you relate to non-Christians, to not have the mindset of Simon looking down on them, keeping your life separate from them, wanting to stay away or to not be defiled or affected by them, but to lovingly move forward and move out, inviting people into the salvation that there is in Christ. That's point number one, sinners. Point number two, forgiveness. Point number two, forgiveness. You see what Jesus does here in this uh, parable, this illustration. He uses this illustration of two people who are being forgiven of two debts. Look at what he says uh, at the end of this section after holding out this parable of the, of the, the two debtors who receive forgiveness for their debts. Um, And he asks Simon, verse 43, verse 42, which of the two debtors will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now look at what Jesus does as he teaches Simon. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, and they are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see what Jesus has done here. He's done a remarkable thing. Jesus hasn't acted as a representative for God and said, God forgives you. What does he say to this woman? He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus forgives this woman. You see what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking for God. How, how can he do that? Well, because he is God. I remember as a college student wrestling with uh, doubt and questioning many things about the Bible, questioning my faith, wondering, is it reasonable? Is it rational to believe in Christianity? Do I have to check my brain at the door of Christianity? Is it intellectual suicide to believe in Jesus? And I remember hearing secular professors saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, C.S. Lewis was really helpful to me when I read passages uh, in his books, particularly Mere Christianity. And he does something really important in terms of an apologetic argument. And he says, well, you cannot have a Jesus who's just a good teacher, who's just a man and just a good example for us. Because Jesus says things that would be unbelievably arrogant if he was only a man. You see what Jesus is saying here. He is putting himself in the place of God, and he is forgiving sins. 
He's forgiving sins that this woman has done. Sins with other people. Toward other people. Against other people. And He is forgiving them. As if they were against Him. And that's what God does. You see, all sin is primarily a sin against God. Even sins that are against other people. The most offended party in our sin isn't just the other people we sin against, but God Himself. And here Jesus stands forgiving sin as the offended party. He is claiming to be God. You see, Jesus is God become man, the incarnate one. He's fully God and fully man in this one person of Jesus Christ. That's why He was born of the Virgin Mary as we read about in Luke 1 and Luke 2 as we'll celebrate in Christmas in a few weeks. He was born of a virgin because His birth was miraculous. God miraculously combined the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, with Mary's DNA. And Jesus was born into the world as the God-man. See, Jesus had already existed from eternity past as God Himself, but He now was joined with us He actually became united with us in our humanity, became one of us so that He could save us. And while He is fully man so that He can save men, He's fully God so that He can save many men and women. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to forgive sins. He has come to deal with our sins forever. Jesus has come living this perfect life that we couldn't live and He is heading to the cross which Luke will talk about in the chapters that follow, in order to die the sacrificial death, the one sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for sin on the cross for sinners like you and me. He's done this so that we might receive true and real and lasting forgiveness in Christ. Forgiveness is what Jesus offers this woman. Forgiveness is what she experiences And she is forgiven, he says, by her faith. You see that he says that in the very last verse of chapter 7. He says your sins are forgiven, but how is it that she is saved? Verse 50? Well, by her faith. Your faith has saved you. You know, salvation, true salvation in Christ, happens by faith. And what does that mean? Well, it means that All other religion is wrong. All other religion teaches some form, some some version of what you have to do in order to be saved and accepted by God is you need to do certain things. You need to obey certain laws. You need to keep certain commandments. You need to jump through certain hoops. And if you do these things right, and enough of them, you will be eventually accepted by God or gods or whatever these other religions teach. All human religion is some form of this. There are things you have to do, and if you do them, if you do them right, if you do enough of them, you may be saved by a benevolent God. But do you see what Jesus teaches in terms of salvation? Salvation isn't a salvation of works. It's not a salvation of of do's and don'ts. It is a salvation that is by faith. Now what does that mean? Your faith has saved you. What it means is that what we do in 
trusting in Christ is just simply that. We put our faith, our trust, our reliance on another person. How is it that we can be saved? How is it that sinners like you and me can be right in the standing of a holy God? Well, it isn't by anything we can do on our own. No, it's only something that Christ can do for us. What we do in faith is we simply rely on what Christ has done. Rather than looking at our own record, our own report card, and thinking that somehow we can get enough A pluses, enough A's or A minuses or B pluses in order to be accepted and receive the approval of God. No, our our record, all of us have failed. All of us have F minuses, G's, H's, Z's, all of us. And our records cannot stand when we bring them to God. But Christ's can. You see, Christ has lived that perfect life. He's gotten that A plus on every class. He and He alone has lived that perfect life that we could never live. When we put our faith in Him, what happens is an amazing exchange. Our sin is placed on Christ and the cross, and His righteous life is then applied to us. Theologians call it imputed, the imputation of Christ. His perfect righteousness is applied to us, and God now declares us to be justified, to be right. And not just better than we were, but perfect. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, now applied to us. How do we do this? Simply by relying on Christ. Simply by running to Christ. Simply by trusting in Christ and what He has done for us. And laying down any hope of being right in our own strength and in our own power. Does it sound too good to be true? I've been taught by my father, if things sound too good to be true, they probably are. That's, that's, that's a good, reasonable reaction to life in a fallen world. Don't give in to salesmen who are telling you things that sound too good to be true. If something sounds too good to be true, there's probably a catch. But here, this message, this good news of Jesus, it may sound too good to be true, but it isn't. It is good news. It is the best news that anyone could hear. This is the gospel. Salvation through faith. Now, if we trust in Christ, if we are united with Christ by faith, if we come to Him and have this wonderful exchange happen, our lives will change. There will be costs down the road, and Jesus warns His disciples that it's going to cost them to follow Jesus. But salvation itself, the message of salvation, is not too good to be true. It is good news. That's why it's called the gospel. Good news. It's the best news. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be reunited with our Creator God. We can be with God forever in heaven. But there will be costs in this life. There will be costs to uniting with Christ and following Him. It may in some ways cost us more than we could imagine in terms of our earthly life. But will it be worth it? Absolutely it will be more than worth it to follow Christ. It will be eternally worth it. For those of us who have been forgiven and have uh, experienced the forgiveness of Christ, the only response to this is love. But before we move to our last point, point number three, love, let me pause for a minute on this. 
if we have received such forgiveness in Christ, if we are Christians now, what does this mean for us? Well, at the very least, it means we should be growing and being good at forgiving others. At the very least, it means that if we have been forgiven so much, if we've been forgiven everything in Christ, that we should be growing and learn to be forgiving people. That we should be growing and learning to imitate our forgiving God, our forgiving Savior. I'm not sure what it is that you may need to forgive someone else of this morning. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe what great thing in terms of sin someone else has sinned against you. But do you know that if you have received such lavish, extravagant forgiveness in Christ, there is no sin that someone else can commit against you that you cannot with His help forgive. Let me encourage you, Christian, to let go of your resentment, your anger, your pride and imitate your Savior in forgiving others who have sinned against you. Point number three, love. Point number three, love. We see the, the then climax of this story. There is, by the end of this story, a complete turnaround in terms of our perspective on this woman and her effusive, her extreme reaction to Jesus. And we realize that her extreme display of love and gratitude to Jesus isn't extreme. We realize that it's the only right and reasonable response to Jesus. Jesus holds this woman, this formerly sinful woman, up as a teacher for you and for me. This woman who had been, it looks like, a prostitute is now an example for us. Not in terms of her life of sin beforehand, but in terms of how she now responds to Christ. She responds to Christ by great love. I wonder what it is that you love. I wonder this morning what it is that you love. I think you can know what it is that you love by asking the people around you what you love to talk about. Because the things that we love, we love to talk about. I wonder what gets the greatest display of emotion in your life. I wonder what those around you would say gets the greatest display of emotion in your life. Whether it's a wonderful display of praising, of excitement, of recommendation, or whether, whether it's a, a display of anger or frustration and rage. What is it that creates great emotion in your life? Whatever it is, there's something there that you love. Whether it's you're responding in anger because that thing you love has been taken away, or whether you're responding in excitement because the thing that you love is actually happening, your display of emotion, your greatest displays of emotion tells us what it is that you love the most. I wonder what that is for you. My family watched over the last month great displays of emotion by me as my Washington Nationals won it all and won the World Series. Having watched the Nationals since I was living in D.C. in the mid-2010s, uh, from 2006 on, I was so excited, finally, 14 years later, to see them win the pennant, 
to see them win the World Series. We saw great displays of emotion. My wife has a, a funny video of me jumping up and down and shouting and my daughter saying, can you guys be quieter? <laughs> great displays of emotion. I was so excited about my team winning. As I was reading this passage, I kept thinking in my mind, what is it that gets a great display of emotion out of me? And baseball is one of those things. This sport that I learned at an early age was taught by my dad as a six, seven, eight-year-old. It got a wonderful, great display of emotion from me. I love baseball. I love watching the sport. I enjoy the sport. But then watching this sinful woman, this formerly sinful woman, have such an effusive display of love for Christ, it got me wondering, do I love Christ as much as I love baseball? I think I do. But if I do, am I showing with my actions, with my words, with the way that I talk, with the things that I do, how much I love Christ? Am I actually realizing by the way that I talk about Christ, the way that I tell others about Christ, am I aware of what a great sinner that I am that has now caused me to love Christ even more and the more that I get to know my sin to exclaim with such fervor and emotion how much I love my Savior Christ who's saved me from so much. I think all of us should look at this passage and not just think how awkward that must have been for them to see that crazy lady doing that crazy thing with Jesus. But we should actually follow Jesus' example and look to her as an example of the kind of love we should be displaying for Christ. And not only for Christ, but then as those who have been united to Christ and His people, showing such displays of love to other people. Obeying both of the greatest commandments. To love our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love our neighbors as ourselves. The way that we love God and the way that we love others is to be a picture of how much we understand about the love that Christ has shown to us. The more we understand our sin, the more we understand Christ the more we will be able to show love to God in great displays and show love to others in great displays. So let me encourage you, Christian. How is your love this morning? How is your love for God? How is your love for Christ? If you're feeling that your love is cold, it may be that you have not reflected deep enough on the weight of your own sin. Perhaps you don't think that Christ has had to do very much to save you. It may be that you do have something in there of the heart of Simon, thinking that sin is other people's problems and not mine. You're busy looking down your nose at others and thanking God that you're not as bad as others, rather than realizing that the, the root, the seed of every great sin in this world is in your own heart. And as, uh, as Richard Baxter put it, we must look at great displays of sin in this world and think, but for the grace of God... There go I. I would be doing the same. Let me encourage you, Christian, as you consider this passage, as you consider this display of love, to focus your attention on Christ as this woman does. You see, in our passage, the focus of the woman is on Jesus. And the focus of the Pharisee is on other sinners comparing himself with them. Let me encourage you to have your attention, your focus on Christ. As the the 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon put it in his 
wonderful quote. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Spurgeon goes on to say, Remember, therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. That is the grip that you have on Christ that saves you. It is Christ that saves you. It isn't your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits, therefore, that save you. So look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ Himself. Don't look to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Don't look to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. As the, the 19th century Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane put it, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. For every one look at self and sin, take ten looks to Christ. We sung earlier, and this is in conclusion, Amazing Grace, a hymn by uh, John Newton, who was famously a slave ship captain involved in all kinds of sin in his former life before Christ. After Christ and salvation, he ended up going on to be a pastor. And he wrote Amazing Grace along with many other hymns that we know. The end of his life, as he was dying on his deathbed, just before Christmas, 1807, he said to a friend, I am packed and sealed and waiting for the post. That is, he's getting ready to be sent to heaven. And as he died, he whispered to a friend on his final day, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. We are going to sing in a moment, His Mercy is More, a hymn that comes from a line from a sermon by another pastor, Richard Sibb, where he says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Sinners, take heart. You may be a great sinner, like the woman in this passage. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you praise that you have revealed to us in your love that we are indeed great sinners. But we thank you even more that you have revealed to us that Christ is a great Savior. We pray that you would give us conviction of sin, yes, but even more conviction that Christ is a Savior for great sinners like us. We pray that we would have hope. We pray that we would have joy in Christ 
And we pray that as those who have been forgiven much, that we would be able to imitate our Savior by forgiving others and loving you and others much too. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.